Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Colvier, and Colvier is the CEO of Zeus Living. Uh, can you give the people a little bit more understanding of what Zeus Living is and what you guys are doing? Sure. Um, our mission is to make it easier for people to move in pursuit of opportunity in their dreams. And the first way that we do that is we provide beautiful furnished housing for people who are relocating or traveling for extended periods of time. Uh, this is a problem I have. So I'm, I want to go to Brazil in uh, January and February just for two months. Yeah. I know that Brazil is a nightmare in terms of if I want to find a place to live. Yeah. Like it's just an absolute nightmare, particularly for a short term period. I lived there for a long time and like the the problems are just ridiculous. So you, do you guys have places in Brazil? Not at the moment. We're only in the U.S. We're in four major metros at the moment. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, I've moved countries four times, changed cities fairly frequently. And that process of trying to find a place to live, signing a 12-month lease, furnishing it, and so on, um, we're tr really trying to make that way more simple. Is that easier in the United States to do? Um, in my experience, it wasn't that easy, but now, you know, we're sort of changing that. And I think obviously the emergence of Airbnb has changed things a little bit, but we're sort of focused on that 30 day plus segment when you're traveling for a few months. And again, I don't think necessarily, um, Airbnb does a good job of solving that one. Yeah. And specifically for people at businesses. Yeah, it's, I mean, I would say our focus is very much like business travel, um, but you can use it as an individual, as a consumer. And, and we have, you know, traveling professors and, and all sorts using it, but that's where we sort of focus to start with. Very cool. And now uh, I'd love to have a conversation about philosophy and business, but life philosophy. We don't need to get into details of like, you know, uh, ancient philosophy, ancient Greek or, or Indian, but we can if you want. Uh, uh, but what is your life philosophy? Why did you start Zeus Living? Sure, I think um, it's it's sort of a long answer. I'll I'll maybe try and give the short version first. Um, you know, growing up, I think the first thing that piqued my interest was becoming a pilot. Uh, my mom was a travel agent. We got to travel a decent amount, and I was really intrigued by flying. And now we could do that. Then I remember. Um, reading that you needed perfect eyesight to become a pilot and at about 15, 16, I needed glasses. And so I was like, okay, I can no longer do that. It was almost by accident that I sort of found the world of entrepreneurship. Um, I took a gap year before university. I met someone who'd started a business selling computers pretty young. And then at university, um, there was this entrepreneurship club forming at, at Oxford. And Oxford wasn't very an uh, entrepreneurial place at that time. Uh, and my default path was, was banking. So I, I grew up in a single parent household and I very much early on wanted to get to financial independence and you know people had told me that like finance was the path to go into uh, and then I was lucky enough to come out here in 2005 and I went to the Google offices and I saw some other sort of startups and I was like hold on a second Silicon Valley is where I want to be and I think um, 
the people that I was meeting here seemed very dynamic, very ambitious. I, I, I could see how sort of technology was going to change the future of humanity. And I was like, okay, this is something that I want to do. And so my first startup was, you know, probably a little bit more, um, I was trying to make money. Um, and then before this startup, I spent a lot more time introspecting about, well, why am I actually drawn to this? And money is actually a really poor motivator. And so I realized that I really liked the challenge of a startup. I felt like, you know, every day counts. You're very engaged. Um, I'm very driven to create an awesome workplace. Uh, I have a goal that I want Zeus to be the best place that anyone's ever worked um, for the for the employees that join. And, and I'm very drawn to this um, sort of idea of just personal growth. Like I've, I, I'm terrified of complacency and I think it can become quite easy to be complacent depending on the career that you pick on. But I don't think in a startup you could do that. And so, um, yeah, those are some of the reasons. And this idea in particular, Zeus, like, you know, as a kid, again, I, I got interested in real estate. I had this idea of you know, I'd love to own some properties in the major cities around the world, uh, not because I wanted a real estate empire, but just this idea of mobility and flexibility. Like if I wanted to spend the summer in Europe or in Asia, making that easy. And so I've been on this long journey, but that's what I'm like building now. And it's it feels pretty awesome. There's a lot of different ways we could go from there. You said technology and its impact that it's going to make on the world. This brings to mind something I've been thinking about, which is that we, you know, we, it seems that we're entering some sort of new era of technology and its impact on the world. For the last 10 to 12 years, we've had kind of a Airbnb, uh, Facebook, uh, all these type of software technologies. And to me, it seems like it's going to go somewhere else. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think it's going somewhere else or do you think it will? I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of opportunity left in, in, in software and it's going to be a huge opportunity. But, but in terms of this exponential kind of growth in, in, in what technology offers, where do you see that going? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've heard people say that maybe all the low-hanging fruit in the world of software it, you know, has been captured. I don't know if I really agree with that because I think people's tastes and changes, uh, wants and changes will continuously evolve. And um, I do think now software is entering other industries. So, you know, we're an example of a tech-enabled business. And when you sort of create an existing business using software from first principles right from the beginning, I think it can transform what you offer. Um, of course, there are obviously new technologies emerging um, that I think will have um, an even larger impact. But the thing that I find quite interesting or exciting is that, you know, again, 50 years from now, the society will live in, the technology that's probably going to impact that the most, we, we may not have even invented it yet. And I always find it interesting when you look at sort of historical sort of sci-fi movies or uh, things that were predicting the future, you know, the internet, sometimes smartphones weren't really a thing in them. And so we got that one like massively wrong. Um, and, you know, it's an invention 20, 30 years old, I guess. So I'm pretty sure what we're predicting into the future now will probably also get quite wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you read any, are you reading any science fiction right now? Not at the moment, no. Yeah. Uh, uh, traditionally, have you read any cyberpunk or... No, I started reading, um, well, I, I think I read The Martian recently. I wouldn't really, well, it's kind of on the edge, but no. Yeah, he, I think he would be considered part of the cyberpunk genre, but I always find it interesting, the, the cyberpunk, uh, essentially, like, these books that are being written right now, because technology is coming in and it's rapidly changing our culture, 
and maybe this is a good question for you. What, what, what is the effect of technology on culture and what is the effect of culture on technology? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the easy and the obvious one is obviously the polarization. I think that's happening with social media and how it's impacting politics and so on. I remember when the first iPhone came out, I was in San Francisco. I was incredibly excited by it, but I didn't want to buy the phone because um, I could see how that little device would like end up taking over my brain. And so I stuck to my BlackBerry for at least two or three years. And then I remember that was around the period when like Facebook was at its peak. I would regularly uninstall it, deactivate my profile, get all these messages from folks where, you know, is everything okay? You know, why aren't you on Facebook? And I'm like, yeah, I was just sort of doing a cleanse, so to speak. Um, and so I, I do think, you know, to some extent, these algorithms control us, like the, uh, the engagement um, sort of notifications and, and everything that you get. And that scares me quite a bit. Like, being present, I feel like is becoming ever harder. And I, was, I think I was reading some research where it's even if, you know, you have your phone in your pocket or in your bag and you, it's not on you and you're not using it, there's still this like latent loop in your brain, which is like monitoring it. And so to really disconnect, you need it very far away from you. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of, I, you know, I, I often think, I, I read this book where it described humans as finely ornamented apes, and I haven't been able to drop that thought in a while. And so I just think of a lot of our ape-like behaviors when we're sort of evolving. The phone has just like amplified them. So seeking status, seeking popularity, joining a tribe, leaving a tribe. And I think the, the phone and a lot of the technology or the platforms that have been built today, they're really amplifying those sort of traits we had. And we haven't yet evolved the sort of antibodies and neither has society to be able to adapt to them. Um, so that said, I, I, you know, I can also see the positives. Um, you know, it, it's easier to stay connected to people who are f very far away from you now. Um, and in terms of like knowledge and learning, like increasing access to that around the world is a huge positive. So there's a balance and I'm, I'm generally, I'd say I'd, I remain on the optimistic side, uh, but there are these sort of drawbacks. I really like the, the analogy of antibodies uh, as a way of working with technology because it seems to me that what we're going through is not a uh, option really. It's not really optional anymore unless you decide to just totally like go off into the forest and like, and and totally, totally disconnect, which many people are doing. Many people have done that. Also, I think here in Silicon Valley, we get an oversized view of, of how connected people are. There's still people, there's still like 1 billion people who are not even connected to the internet yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are whole, and I was just talking with somebody yesterday about what will happen once that 1 billion comes online. Uh, it's similar to a type of like, you know, uh, people in Amazon who come in contact with civilization, but it's like a virtual civilization. So I, I'm really interested to, to figure out what, what happens when that, that clash happens. Uh, but so what are, what do you see as the an antibodies uh, or adaptation process for this kind of stress that technology is bringing us? You know, we've seen a few things come out. So I think you have, you can grayscale your phone, um, I think parents are preventing screen time for their kids and not giving them phones or iPads super early or limiting their use case. Uh, I think just it's way more acceptable now if you're at a dinner party or whatever to sort of just say, you know, phones away or um, not pull them out. So I think, I think we've started. Um, I, I think I pretty much keep my phone on do not disturb all the time. Um, 
so I never really see my notifications or mm. and and so I don't I'm not as interrupted I guess in the workplace that's still hard like slack is a huge thing now and, and, and we get these notifications but um, even email um, you know, I know there's this whole thing around like inbox zero and being super responsive but I way prefer to like batch email and I kind of don't let it dictate my day like I try and schedule out what's important for me first so I think um, you know individuals are evolving these techniques maybe companies are and then like families and circles of friends as well um but it is a ongoing battle and i I also just think about now like when you go to so say music concerts and there's this amazing moment happening and everyone's got their phones out and it's much more about capturing it digitally so you could reflect on it versus being super present and enjoying it and i think it's uh remember that uh was it Freddie Mercury in his, um, uh, yeah, at Wembley Stadium, like there's this photo of him on stage and like everyone in the audience just like making eye contact, super engaged. And someone had like uh, sort of transposed that to like a modern day thing where everyone's phones are out and everyone's looking and jostling to try and get like the best picture. Um, so I wonder what we've we've lost in that. Well, that's really interesting because I was going to ask as a follow-up question uh, uh, what practices you have, but you just mentioned a practice, which is essentially you schedule your time so that you batch email in a certain time period and you kind of really become jealous over your time. And that that leads me to another question, which is the business, how, because in business, it's really important to be both connected, but at the same time, manage that connection in a way that doesn't destroy the golden egg, which then the golden egg is assumingly your ability to what is the comic uh, strategy? Like, you know, what is that? I think it's that ability to think. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the main, the main asset I have. And like uh, most of us have. And so I think anything that enhances your ability to think, um, obviously sometimes you're thinking about strategy, but you can be thinking about other things as well. Uh, that's really precious. And anything that interrupts you and like reduces your ability to think, I think is a, is a bad thing. Um, and, you know, in a startup, it, it can be quite stressful if you're going through a fundraising process or other things like stress obviously impacts you. And I think you do lose your ability to make like the best decisions or a little bit of your, your judgment. Um, and so mitigating that, uh, I think, is essential. And I'm like acutely aware of it. Mm-hmm. And this will sound funny, but like I like playing chess. I have it on my phone. Um, I play the sort of one minute games, 60 second games, and I sort of know roughly what my score is at. And I'll play, if I get a five minute break, I'll play like maybe two or three games. And I can immediately tell my performance, like how alert I am. And because I'll be losing a few or I'll be winning a few. And then I'm like, okay, I know I'm not at my full powers at this moment. So whatever decision I'm making or thinking about it, like potentially be extra cautious or, you know, looping other people as well. That's really interesting. It's almost like chess is mindfulness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fast games, you can be pretty like mindless in them uh-huh. <laughs> and so you know a few things. Uh, but at the same time, you're still you're, you're still thinking. Interesting. And what is the what does business mean to you? Honestly, I think um, you know, Paul Graham coined it best uh, with phrase make something people want um i remember so paul graham 
founded Y Combinators, computer scientist, and he had his own company as well. We were given these gray t-shirts when I moved here in 2007 and we joined Y Combinator. And it's it's so simple, but uh, sort of compressing it to that is essentially what I think a business's job is to do. It's like make something people want. Uh, And then, you know, there's strategies around how you do that effectively, how you get it to scale, um, how you build a team and so on. Um, But in essence, that's what I think it is. And now you guys are at this hyper growth stage, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And what is the main difference between that beginning period of like ideation zero to one kind of thing and now where you've got it figured out and now you're growing? What are the biggest things that you've learned out of that process? Yeah, I would say in zero to one, um, you know, I was doing almost everything. I would be talking to all of our customers. I'd be building the product. I would help with the marketing. Um you know, obviously there's a bit of sort of recruitment going on and so on. And then at one to X, so this scaling phase, the mindset is almost different where I kind of don't want to be doing anything. I, I sort of have to replace myself out of each of those functions. Um, and then what was in my brain trying to build process around it or hire other people who can then build a process around it. And, um, you know, product market fit, I think is, is a moving target. Um, we have it both on, you know, our, uh, real estate partner side, our homeowners, where we, we get our homes and then on the demand side with the people who, who live in our homes. Uh, but you have to be mindful of like what's happening in the wider market and, and competition and, and continuously adapting to that. So um, I think building a business, I'd say, or sorry, scaling a business, it's in the realm of, uh, it's, it's kind of science. It's not really a mystery. I think people have done it. You can study it. Uh, one of the great things about being out here is people are very willing to share their knowledge and experience. Uh, finding product market fit, I feel like there's also a lot of science to it, but there's also perhaps a bit of art and intuition and, and maybe even mystery. Like it took me years before we sort of came up with Zeus and um, Zeus happened the way I imagine a startup should happen where you have this huge problem and organically try and solve it versus um, we were sort of going out and experimenting with ideas because there was this new trend or something mm. um so i'd say that's the 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 largest shift and um i'd say maybe the other interesting one as a ceo is i feel like my job is a lot more around communication now um and so when we're when you're 10 people or even 30 people it's very easy for everyone to be up to speed with what you know the priorities are what you're doing and then now i think we're at about 220 um, it's it's a little bit more challenging. And so our all hands um, that we've loosely modeled on Square, it's a key moment for me to message what I think is really important to the company. And then I have, have a staff meeting and then we have these other sort of company-wide meetings. And so uh, writing things down, um, I have a user guide um, so people know how I work and how to interact with me, but then just writing down our our vision, the plan to get there, our strategy, I think that's been another interesting shift. And so there's a really interesting thing I learned about uh, the brain and social relationships. So our prefrontal cortex grew at the same time as both our hands uh, or our tactile nature of our hands and the growth of social relationships. So uh, uh, Robert Sapolsky did some interesting research into if you grow your social network, you will also grow your prefrontal cortex, this particular part of the prefrontal cortex. Um, and so as a, a CEO now, your, your company is now over 150 people. So it's uh, now over Dunbar's number, which is the, uh, you know, the evolutionary number at which we, but our brain is plastic. So our brain can learn and can grow over the time. And with my podcast, I now interact with like a lot of people, way more than 150 people. And I've noticed that my brain is 
feels like it's growing, but it's stressful. Uh, would you agree? Would, would you would you say that it is a sort of stressful process, like having that kind of going from having a smaller network of people that might have happened earlier for you in your first company, but in business, what I'm trying to say is, but in business, it seems to require a large amount of relationships, kind of managing a large amount of relationships. But uh, I wonder what that experience is like for you. Yeah, <clears throat> a few thoughts came up for me. Um, so I have a coach. Um, when I analyze parts of my job that I find particularly sort of draining or stressful, um, conflict was one of them that I realized. And so we engineered a way where um, I didn't have to sort of deal with all of the interpersonal conflict that's, that would uh, come mm. up. And I think that allowed me to sort of scale myself a little bit more. And um, again, giving people effective tools to communicate like disagreement, communicate feedback and so on is a way that we've worked around this. I think building trust amongst people has been really critical. So uh, we we used to go on offsites every quarter and now we do it twice per year. And we do sort of some bonding exercises, some sort of vulnerability exercises where everyone would hopefully build a lot of trust with their coworkers. And I think that makes things a lot easier. Now, obviously our company is 225 people, but we have offices in LA, Seattle, DC, and other places. And so not everyone is in San Francisco. And so our, I think our San Francisco group is still below the Dunbar's number. I have a smaller group now, which I call sort of like my staff or my staff meeting. Um, I, I personally have actually quite enjoyed this. I know there are some people, you know, some of the early employees are very much like, oh, it was so sort of fun when it was like 30 of us or 20 of us. And, and I'm like, yes, it was. And it was a different kind of fun, but I actually really like that I'm getting to meet all these new people and learn from them and interact with them. And I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, how far we can take it. Um, I, I do think I'm someone that basically does crave connection. And I think the workplace provides an environment where you can build different types of connections with people. Um, and so, yeah, for me, that part, you know, adding lots of people hasn't been super stressful, but uh, you know, maybe it's because I'm like insulated from some of the the craziness that's going on. Yeah, and I guess part of the job as the as a CEO is to is to uh, figure out chains of communication so that you aren't interacting with uh, in in a cool because there's there's so many different forms of communication because the uh, there's a form of communication which is broadcasting and it seems to be as a CEO grows their company the, the the company that they need to broadcast more broadcast the message to a lot more people like bigger team meetings and stuff like that and then have a smaller group of people which they're interacting with and having that bi-directional communication would you was that accurate would you say yeah I, i'd agree with that yeah. and um i also just had this thought I, I was reading this book recently performing under pressure mm. and it was talking about the distinction between stress and pressure and i think they define find stress as a, a, a non-specific response to some sort of change in your environment or some stimuli. And, um, and pressure was in fact where there's some sort of like event or, or action happening mm -hmm. where your performance, the outcome is very contingent on how you perform and there's potential for there to be a bad outcome. So, for example, if you're if you're taking an entrance exam to get into a school, that's pressure because if you don't do well, you might not get in. Um, but other things may just be stress. And I think the book I haven't finished it yet, but it's making the point that often we conflate stressful situations with 
pressurized situations. Um, and so, for example, like maybe even this podcast, like if I felt pressure, it's like, okay, I need to do this or something bad will happen if like, you know, we do this or that. Yeah. But actually it's not really. And our human, our brains evolved when pressure situations could mean losing your life. Yeah. Uh, and we evolved responses for those sort of uh, situations uh, and they don't necessarily serve us anymore. And so I think uh, when you think about certain tools or techniques for like understanding, well, hey, this, I feel stressed right now, but this isn't actually like a pressure situation. Mm. Um, that's how you can sort of bring yourself back. And that's been, that's been interesting for me as well at the company. Now, my job, I feel like I'm getting into sort of a lot more pressure situations, um, but they might not necessarily be that. And so it is a continuous sort of battle. And, and I think the other interesting thing I learned from the book was uh, this idea of uh, sort of like the clutch player in, in sport who like takes it up another level when, you know, the going gets tough. Um, they sort of argue that it's largely a myth. And I think they took a lot of data from the world of uh, sort of basketball. And, and what they're saying is that some people are way better at maintaining their performance. But in, in, in actuality, most people under pressure, their performance goes down. Mm -hmm. And it's just a question of to like what degree do things get worse. And so the so-called like clutch player is someone who can just sort of say very level um, but they're not necessarily improving. If you actually look at the, the data on like and free throws or something, they're saying at the same level that they are, but we perceive it as them sort of, you know, showing up in pressure. But they're just stable. Yeah, they're just stable. And so the, the game is actually how do you like not crumble or let the sort of stress and pressure like bring you down a bit. And I, I thought that was quite interesting. So was the book, is the book basically saying that the, that, um, pressure is a subjective thing. Stress is a, is a uh, objective uh, uh, force. So gravity is a, I am, I am being stressed by gravity and it's just happening and that's yeah. not subjective, but pressure, this idea of pressure is something that's within the realm of social dynamics. And that if, if we change the attitude towards pressure, uh, we can essentially <laughs> loosen that pressure. Yeah. And um, I'm a big, I'm a big soccer fan. And it, it just reminded me of this quote from Jose Mourinho. He's one of the most successful managers ever, where I think someone was interviewing him after a game that they'd lost. And he said, like, how are you coping with the pressure? And he's like, this is football. This isn't pressure. Pressure is like trying to provide a meal for your family. Um, you know, if you're struggling in that, like, this isn't pressure. Mm -hmm. I thought that was quite sort of an interesting way of putting it. This gets into uh, something I've been talking a lot about with a lot of people is that we have these, it's kind of like most of life can be put into two categories, of course, you know, this is just like a simplification, but uh, we have natural laws of the universe, natural principles of the universe, and then we have social dynamics. Um, and social dynamics are part of these natural principles, but they are also almost in a delusion or a fantasy kind of separate from them as well. So like money, for an example, money is something that human beings got together, not maybe intentionally, but kind of came out about as a bunch of humans getting together and creating this abstract concept called money, which they then put attention on and create uh, where no such thing created, no such thing exists in the in natural universe. Um, and it gets me thinking about this, and I forgot my original question, but uh, what does that bring to mind? Uh, for me, it made me think of the book um, Finite and Infinite Games, um, which um, I heard about first from my former co-founder, Patrick of Stripe. And I was just thinking that um, what are the rules of the game? And, and do these rules only exist if, you know, we, we exist and we're sort of interacting in some way? And 
you know, finite games, it's closed, there's rules, everyone knows there's a defined end, you know, a game of sport is a finite game, but an infinite game is ongoing and and there isn't a defined end. And I sometimes think, I'm sure there are people who model basically just life as as like a as an infinite game and, and we're playing at this game and uh, are the rules really defined or not? Um, and it's quite interesting when you let you think let yourself think that they're not defined or other people don't believe them to be sort of defined and how that changes things. Um, obviously, if we're a social species and we're interacting with each other, then there is this sort of like game theory aspect to it and reputation and repeated games and so on. So I do think uh, there are these emergent laws that, that happen um, through our interactions. But but yeah, coming back to your original point, um, it's not like, you know, the laws of, of, of nature or like physics and stuff. And so where does business fit into that? I'd say business is an infinite game, yeah. um, for sure. And there are some rules, but... Um, there also aren't. <laughs> yeah. And and it's I, I think it's an interesting moment when you sort of realise that it kind of all is made up, if that makes sense, about what you're meant to do and what you're not meant to do and, and advice and, and all the rest of it. And I, I feel like a lot of rules are broken all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And this gets into the, this idea that a coach once gave me, which is that there are principles. Uh, there are principles of the universe. There are principles of nature. There are principles of human dynamics. And if you bat your head against a principle, your head's going to be the one that's going to get destroyed because they're they're solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are, are rules, and, and rules are human-defined, and they only make sense in that, in that social context, basically. Um, and it's really interesting because, particularly in entrepreneurship, I feel like a friend of mine recently said, <laughs> everything is an axiom. Everything, this idea that you have to raise money, this idea that, that you, you have to have two co-founders, you, all, all this stuff is axioms and, you know, you can get evidence for all this different stuff, but that even, even gathering that evidence is suspect. Uh, so, so all of it is open to interpretation, I would say, uh, and experimentation. Uh, cause there are companies that have only one co-founder. There are companies that have only raised money. They might be the exceptions, but, but all this stuff seems to be up for experimentation with, what, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I think maybe maybe under that lens, then you know, make something people want is 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 a principle. Mm, <laughs> but um, you know, again, in the early world of Y Combinator, we were in the fourth batch. I remember the batch after me was Drew from Dropbox, and he was a single founder, and so straight away he was like kind of breaking one of the first rules, <laughs> and then he found found a rush, and then also we had this. Uh, sort of rule of like launching early and getting feedback and I think Dropbox took like a year to ship uh, maybe even longer and even when I think about Stripe and their public launch it's maybe two years in and so um, you know we have all these sort of bits of advice and, and things that are, are suggested to you and then very sort of immediately in front of you you see the counter examples <laughs> that are these are these outliers so um yeah, like the sort of startup, the world of startup advice is, is an interesting one. And like there's bits and bobs that you can draw from, but maybe, you know, making something people want is the, the truth. What was the worst piece of advice that you ever got? Um, <laughs> this is going to sound... I remember it wasn't really maybe advice per se, but in a Paul Graham essay, there was this point about... Um, tools and like giving engineers like whatever tools they want to build things and I think that is 
that is correct. And I still sort of follow, follow that advice early on. But in our first startup, we ended up uh, building our product on Smalltalk, um, which is a programming language, kind of obscure. And, you know, Patrick wanted to do that. And I remember getting advice from him. It was actually Max Levchin, um, one of the PayPal founders, where he's like, this idea that a programming language is going to give you some advantage uh, is, a, is a myth. Um, you don't want to be doing that. It's harder to find engineers and, and so on. And back then we were like, no, we think we could build a better product um, because this allows for continuations and all this other stuff. And then that was like wrong. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, like the, that. that's maybe one thing. But I think uh, the general truth around that is, is, is still correct. Mm-hmm. I think there's just a, a, exceptions that people run into. And like a, advice is sort of, generalized from someone's particular experience yeah and so how do you tell the difference between an exception and a rule um (laughs) (laughs) i mean you experience them i guess (laughs) i think you know if i draw this back to to zeus um we you know i i guess one one thing that sort of changed for me was I, I, I think like the two states in the startup are basically having product market fit and not having product market fit. And when you don't have product market fit, everything you do should be geared towards getting product market fit. Like nothing else matters. And there's, you know, and then I, I remember also thinking like, if you don't know if you have product market fit, it means you don't have product market fit. And I remember working on earlier sort of products in my career where, there were, there were users, there was growth, there was engagement. Mm. And I'd be like, do we have product market fit? And the fact that I was asking that was like, not really, not in the like the sort of yeah, true sense of it. And, um, you know, I, I've shared this story before, but I would try and, you know, meet investors to pitch, you know, my idea. And when I had this idea that was basically working, seeing the difference in like response rate and, and, and reactions was just so like qualitatively different to all my interactions with investors when I was working on something that didn't work that I was like, oh my God. Mm. And like, I was then, you know, trying little tweaks here or there, little sort of iterations, building features to try and get to product market fit in my first thing. But I actually think um, it's quite a blunt sort of test that you can create where like, do people want this? And so um, like you can cut through all of this advice about like fundraising and like, should you have two co-founders, should you have technical backgrounds, all of that by just applying that kind of lens. Like, does your thing have product market fit? If it doesn't, then change it or like figure out how you can get to it very quickly. And then once you have it, everything else again, like sort of falls into place. Like you, it's not like you're guaranteed success at that point. There's still many failure modes, I guess. Um, but then at least you have, I think, the, uh, the necessary condition. That's really interesting. What did it feel like uh, when you got that product market fit? When the first time you realized, when you ask yourself that question, did I get product market fit? Is it with Zeus Oblivion? Was that the yeah, first time? Yeah, it was time? with Zeus, yeah. Oh, wow. What did it feel like? <laughs> it felt, it felt um, a little bit surreal because I was like, the, the, the approach we kind of took with Zeus was like, okay, we, we want this thing to like fail. So let's figure out all the ways it can fail. Uh, one of them was let's start it in San Francisco, which is incredibly tough, like, sort of housing market um, and our value proposition to homeowners, you know, uh, our value propositions are, we'll give you guaranteed income. We make it a turnkey experience. We offer you high quality residence, but San Francisco is such a hot housing market that 
when we started, at least homeowners would say, hey, I'll put an ad up on Craigslist. I'll have 30 people at my door tomorrow morning. So like, do I really need you? What, what do you guys offer? So we we said, if we can make this work here, then it will work everywhere because every other rental market, I think, is, is easier than here. Then, um, you know, the first few customers, uh, I would meet them in person, like homeowners and say, hey, we're this property management company. And, you know, they would be willing to try us out. They, sound, they, they would say almost like this sounds too good to be true. And then one of my investors, I think it was uh, Gigi Levy, um, who's a partner at NFX, he said, Colvier, I do not believe you when you tell me that you meet customers and they want to try the product because you've got this British accent, can be charming, <laughs> and they're just going to say yes to whatever you say. <laughs> I need you to convert the customer based on a like web page. So I was like, okay, then we created a, a landing page where we tried to um, sort of explain the value proposition and say, will this convert customers? And then it did. And so, um, you know, we... Marketing was like another thing. Um, the company got to 200 people full-time and we only had one full-time marketer uh, because we were sort of saying like, I didn't really want to spend money on marketing or like that that kind of growth. I just wanted customers to find us or word of mouth to kick in. And that was this other thing that happened because I, I think it can be very easy to delude yourself by paying for growth, paying for installs, paying for, for, for customers and so on. So so with Zeus, it was almost like, you know, I... I almost like superstitiously, like, I think this thing is going to work, but let me find out all the ways it, it's not going to work. And then it kind of just overcame those hurdles. I was like, oh, damn, like, this is a real thing and people want this. And so, um, yeah. That's really interesting. This whole thing, the whole conversation seems to be um, coming to a one single question that I have is what is the importance of asking questions in business? Particularly this question, do I have product market fit? Because if you can ask that question, then that like, and you and you really wait for the answer, you know, like there's no one, no one else needs to tell you that you don't need any data or anything like that. You can kind of just ask yourself that question. What are some other really important questions uh, that you find yourself asking throughout the day or even having coaches ask you? Yeah. So, so the one, the one for myself is um, sort of say this thing about like living in reality. I believe the easiest person to deceive is yourself. And so every now and then I look at our business and I look at the numbers and I'm like, are we like, you know, doing the best job we can? Are, are we like actually, like I'm, I'm basically trying to say like, is this thing real? Like, will it scale? Is it needed all around the world? And so I'm, I'm just a skeptic, I guess. And and this, this, is, this leads me to an, an interesting sort of conversation I had before where, you know, so I went to school at, at Oxford. The way we were taught to get to truth was by skepticism and asking questions. And if anything, like having certainty about something was was like a bad sign. And I found when I came out here and you're in the mode of like being a CEO, being an entrepreneur and like fundraising, I think, you know, investors really are looking for certainty. And so if you present any kind of like skepticism, like when I would talk about the business, I'd be like, hey, it's working, but X, Y, and Z, we still need to figure out, or like these might be risks, it would turn investors off. And I'm like, well, hey, I'm, I'm like being truthful. Um, and then, you know, I'd see other entrepreneurs where maybe I, I would interact with them and they had such incredible certainty about what they're working on. I was like, wait, is that like real or is that like for show? And so uh, I was talking to this investor and he sort of said this thing to me. He was like, you know, in, in England or, you know, the, the university tradition that I came from, like, that's how we got to truth. It was through, through doubt and doubting. But in America, truth was much more messianic. 
and someone discovers the truth uh, from up above and then their job is to like preach it um, versus like we have this truth and we're going to continuously attack it. And, and I do think there is this fine balance in the world of entrepreneurship where, you know, you want to persuade people to join your mission to join your company and you've got to have conviction in what you're working on. Uh, but then balancing that conviction with the right level of like doubt, I guess, and skepticism um, and, and staying like a little bit paranoid. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm referencing Stripe here, but, but Patrick and John told me that, you know, from the outside, Stripe is obviously an incredibly successful company. Uh, but when he was telling me that when employees actually join in the first week, they spend like a lot of effort, almost brainwashing them mm-hmm. to all the ways that Stripe could fail mm-hmm. and how they haven't actually like made it yet. Mm-hmm. And because I guess when you get to those stages of success and you, the, the type of people you're attracting, they're drawn to the success, mm-hmm. but that success isn't guaranteed. And, and so I, I think it's a testament to their continued like innovation and, and sort of scaling, like how they've done that. And um, I'm sort of finding that for myself as well, where, you know, when I'm, I'm pitching someone, you want to have the, this like certainty, uh, but in the sort of day-to-day execution of it, uh, we want to ask a lot of questions. Once I could bit <laughs> <laughs> start shooting questions at yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting. Um, it's a huge insight for me. And uh, is it possible, have you ever met an investor who, and maybe it's a lead investor because they're the ones, uh, have you ever met an investor who doesn't fall into that trap of always looking for certainty wherever their money goes? Is there something inevitable about this idea of uh, putting capital into, into different places that requires you to have that certainty? I think so. I, I've maybe noticed it with um, more experienced investors. And I'd actually say, I'd, I'd mentioned like Paul Graham here, especially in the world of early stage investing, when you realize you're investing in like an individual versus like this particular formulation of an idea or a business. Mm. And so um, I remember actually, again, coming from England, it's a sort of different entrepreneurial climate than out here. The, the very first idea that we got into Y Combinator for, um, it didn't look like it was working out. And I, I felt very nervous and I felt very bad that, you know, I was losing somebody's money. Um, and you emailed Paul Graham and he asked us to meet him for breakfast and we were sort of terrified. And he just said, he was very sort of casual and nonchalant. He was like, oh, if this doesn't work, don't worry, I'll, I'll write another $50,000 check and you can go work on the next thing. <laughs> I was just sort of blown away by that. I was like, wait, where am I? How is this real? Um, but I think he had that, he was onto that, that like, you're investing in the individual and there's some level of trust that you'll figure it out. And there's no sort of uh, delusion that the path is going to be rosy to success. There's many setbacks that you have to overcome. But if you're betting in the individual, and and, and I think the Airbnb investment is another sort of uh, great example of this, where he saw this tenacity, you know, may have had question marks around the original idea. And all these other investors were like, that's crazy um but he was backing the individuals and and like look at what it's become so i think you know the more experienced investor maybe people who've seen a lot of early stage that's a way around it where yes there may be questions but you know you're backing an individual and you trust them to figure it out Mm. that's a good point uh so we got about five minutes left uh i tried during this space of the interview i've been trying to grab your expertise and i want to find out one question that would elicit that expertise uh for the benefit of my audience for me, it's definitely your expertise is business and uh, uh, hyper growth. Okay, yeah. So if there's one thing that you would advise, knowing that advice is generalized to your experience, uh, to somebody who is thinking about this early stage company, maybe already has some product market fit and is about to enter this hyper growth phase, what would you tell them? 
Yeah, I think um, if you have product market fit and you're entering this scaling phase, I would say be really intentional about your company's culture and defining what your values are as a company, um, you know, coming from the founders or, or, or yourself, and then screening against that like aggressively when you're growing. Because um, I think culture can be a superpower for scaling, uh, picking um, and like defining how you want to operate as a company, like how customer centric are you? What's the tolerance for mistakes? What type of individuals are you going for? Are you going for performance over everything else? Or, or are you looking for a type of collaboration? Um, and I think, you know, I've seen companies maybe not pay attention to culture and then things can get derailed. And then you have all these other challenges later on and, and you may even lose that sort of uh, product market fit or that momentum that you have. Um, but I've seen on the other side, like maintaining that sort of high standard for, for people joining the team and and, and the, the culture fit. And then it just amplifies everything you have and you have even more momentum and then you can attract even more people. Uh, uh, talented individuals to your to your mission so I'd say uh, that was something that we were intentional about and I'd, I'd had experience of like not paying attention to culture before um, and again it's a sort of work in progress and I communicate to the team that we are all co-owners of the culture and it's on everyone to sort of uh, maintain it and, and and evolve it as we scale uh, but that would probably be my sort of generalized advice. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, I interviewed my uncle. My uncle's now like 75 years old and he started a computer software company in the 80s and he grew it very big and got it all the way to IPO. Uh, And he said the number one thing you got to think about is in times of success, how can you look forward to the times where it starts to get bad and then start to set up those uh, things in the company in the times of success so that when it does get bad, uh, how can you uh, how can you work with that and make sure everybody's on board with like, okay, this is, this is, this is how it's going right now, but at some point it's not going to go like this. Yeah. Cool. So how can people find out more about you? How can fi- people find out more about Zeus Living? Um, for me, I, uh, my Twitter handle is cool, K-U-L. Um, our website is Zeus Living and people could just hit me up on that. Cool. Thank you so much. This has been really cool. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.